and welcome to Fort Wayne Ballet Kinetic Conversations. I'm Jim Sparrow. Today, we have a special treat. Our guests are Raymond Lukens from American Ballet Theater and Karen Gibbons-Brown, Artistic Director of Fort Wayne Ballet. And this is going to be a little bit different in that it's just going to be a conversation. I think it's fascinating to have the opportunity to talk to two professionals who were professional dancers and now have moved into different areas of the field. And I think our listeners will think so as well. So Karen and Raymond, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So just to start the conversation, why don't we start by talking a little bit about your early career? I think it's fascinating to learn how people get involved in dance and what really are the impetus for why you want to be involved in dance and then where it takes you. I actually was an acrobat first, and it was my acrobatics teacher who said that if I really wanted a job in the circus, I had to take ballet <laughs> lessons to improve my line. <laughs> and so I went to take ballet lessons, and but because of the acrobatics, I was very limber, and I was not afraid to do stuff, because when you do backflips and things like that, it just didn't seem that scary to do what was required from ballet, even though a double tour en l'air was jumping up and turning twice is harder than an aerial cartwheel. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't have thought that. It's because the aerial cartwheel might be scary because your head is down. Right. But when you're young, you don't realize it. And when you're young and you fall, basically nothing happens. You just fall and just <laughs> get up. Right. <laughs> Which is not the case through all of life, right? <clears throat> no. So. so when did you decide you wanted to go into dance? I had not decided. It was my acrobatics teacher who decided. And um, so he made me get a scholarship at American Ballet Theater. So I started taking lessons at the school at American Ballet Theater when it was on 57th Street in New York between 8th and 9th Avenue. And so I did classes mainly with Mr. Danilian and Ms. Perislavic. And then I had many other teachers there. And I fell in love with it because it was hard. It was very challenging, and it was way harder than I thought it was going to be. So I really enjoyed it. And my father was a cinematographer, so I was in the middle of seeing movies being made and TV shows. My best friend from elementary school through high school, her parents were Broadway performers, Gordon and Jane Cannell. She was the original Agnes Gooch and Mame, and Gordon was Vanda Gilder and Hello, Dolly. So even as a youngster, I was backstage of the Winter Garden or the St. James Theater or movie studio. So I saw actors performing. And the whole idea of using the body to move people was a lot of fun. It was physical. While just acting on its own, I didn't think it was as interesting as doing acrobatics because I was a little bit of a crazy kid. And um, yeah, I broke my front tooth trying to do a handstand on a bicycle. And uh, so it, it, the idea of the physicality plus also the acting or uh, just trying to show the human condition was really very um, intriguing and fun. So when you left American Ballet Theater School, where did dance take you from there? Well, I was taking class. I was in, I think it was Mr. Danilian's class and uh, Mrs. Harkness, Rebecca mm -hmm. Harkness, who founded the Harkness Ballet and a group of people that were with her, uh, Nikita Tallinn and, and Robert Sievers and Patricia Neary and all, they all came by and I was offered a traineeship with the Harkness Ballet. So that mm -hmm. was my first professional job. And from there? Well, from there, I thought maybe I should go to college, and I was offered a position in Nebraska. They would pay me to go to school because they were trying to start a dance department in Wayne State College in Nebraska. 
And I thought I was going to be bored to death, and I wasn't because while I was dancing, I also went to the High School of Music and Art in New York. So I was a painter and sculptor, and I was also a musician. So I had a rock band when I was in, <laughs> in high school. And there I met a lot of friends. I had a wonderful, wonderful roommate in college, and we became like brothers. And so I created ballets, and I learned to milk a cow, <laughs> and I learned to go catfishing. And so it was a, a fantastic experience. Yeah. I even got football players to do a rock ballet that the band in the, in the university, they put together this, they composed the music and I, I did a rock ballet and I got the football players. I enticed them when I showed them how I could do a one-handed lift of a girl and they were going, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> and so they wanted to do it. And then from there, I said, okay, this has been really fun, but I really have to get back into the professional world. And I saw an advertisement for a company that Nijinska, Bronislava Nijinska mm -hmm. was going to be the ballet mistress and Hans Brenner from the Royal Danish was the ballet master. And I said, I want to go there. And it was created around Nijinska's productions, and that was pretty amazing. And then we went to Europe on a big tour with Rudolf Nureyev and many other wonderful dancers. And when I was in Europe, I just kept getting job offers and just stayed in Europe for the rest of my career. And you picked up four other languages at the time? Yes. Well, I lived... I already knew Spanish and French pretty well. So I went to live in Belgium, and then I went to live in Germany. So I learned German, and then I went back to live in France. So that was easy because I already knew French. And then I went to live in Italy, and I fell in love with Italy. I think it's just the most gorgeous place in the world. And I learned Italian. That was my last language to learn. <laughs> what brought you back to America? Actually, it was a friend from Harkness. We were trainees together at the Harkness Ballet, Kirk Peterson. And Kirk then became principal dancer with ABTN with San Francisco Ballet. And we just bumped into each other. And he was doing a piece for the School of American Ballet summer program. But he was doing also a Broadway show. And he said, would you mind taking my rehearsals? So you run the rehearsals for me. And I said, sure. And I went and then I went back to Italy and he came back to visit and he saw that I was at that point teaching and he saw the students in Italy. And then when he came back to America, he called me and said, would you like to be my ballet master? And Franco, my partner, he said, would you like to direct the school? So we came to Hartford because he's the director of Hartford Ballet. And that's how we came back to America. And you stay here primarily outside of your travels. The rest of your career was pretty much in America from there. Uh, yes. Then I started being ballet master, first of all, for several companies. And my last job as a ballet master was with Boston Ballet. And then I was directing the junior company of the Boston Ballet. Then you went back to American Ballet Theater, correct? Yeah. It's funny because I always dreamt of going into American Ballet Theater. That was the dream company. And when I was offered the traineeship for Harkness in the very beginning, when I was, what, 17 years old mm -hmm. or so, I asked Mr. Danilian, I'm not taking this because I want to be an ABT. He says, that's a job. You take it because you just never know. There might not be a contract available. It's just a matter of timing. So coming back to American Ballet Theater was very special. Well, you didn't just come back to American Ballet Theater. You and Franco DeVito wrote the curriculum for American Ballet Theater training. Right. So American Ballet Theater found that they were having problems with dancers who were highly specific in their style. And American Ballet Theater is a very eclectic. You have to be able to switch styles like 
Kevin McKenzie, our artistic director, likened it to be able to go to a closet and change your clothes depending on what you're going to. But those who were highly specific took a lot more time to learn a new way of moving. But what was really most worrying that often these dancers would get injured because their body memory just couldn't deal with the new way of moving. So Kirk Peterson then suggested that we needed to create a system. And Franco and I had actually redone the program, the syllabus for the Hartford Ballet School. So then he said, I can't do this without Raymond and Franco. And then I got a phone call to go to Paris, to the Paris Opera to do research for a new program for ABT. And then Kirk was busy with the company. So it's just like the stars were in the right order. And Kevin McKenzie saw Franco teach and he said, you're the person who's going to direct the school. So things fiddled into place purely by chance. And then we were given charge of creating the American Ballet Theater National Training Curriculum. And that curriculum is actually not just known in America, it's known worldwide. Oh my goodness. Uh, We have teachers... I dare say in every single continent in the world. So we have teachers in all the United States, Canada, many countries in Latin America, in several countries in Europe, Africa, in Asia. We taught it in St. Petersburg, Russia also. We have teachers in India, in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Beijing, Shanghai, in uh, uh, New Zealand, in Australia. The program has taken off. In fact, after I leave Fort Wayne, I will be going in a week's time to Hong Kong. Amazing. So you've been in this field for a while. Oh, yes. (laughs) been a professional dancer and you have created with Franco, created this curriculum that's really taken off around the world in training dancers safely and appropriately to do anything they're asked to do by a choreographer. Yes. uh, The idea was for just professional dancers. But then American Ballet Theater was given the great honor of becoming the official company of the country of the United States by Congress. And so with that honor came the responsibility in dance education. How do we deal with the entire population of dance students? And as we said, dancing is really not important. People are. So we want to make sure that the program will be holistic, that it helps all students who study dance have a positive experience of growth with it. I think at this point, it might be important to interject that oftentimes, specifically in Europe, sometimes in Asia, you don't get to choose to dance like we do in America. You are selected. You must audition. And then they say it's okay for you to take classes in these schools. But in America, the person gets to decide, do they want to study dance? And I think it's really important that everybody has a curriculum that addresses them to be able to learn safely. Tell me a little bit about what you see as you travel. And you've seen this transition from dancer to teacher, educator, curriculum co-creator. How have you seen the transitioning of dance education? When I was a student, I was rather unaware of these differences because I was very lucky. I was physically gifted and I could do things easily. I could turn easily and I jumped very high easily. So when I started teaching, I had a shock because I'm going, well, can't you just put your leg there or can't you just turn your heel forward? And then I noticed, wow, a lot of people can't do this. Mm -hmm. And so as a teacher, and I started teaching in Florence in Italy, so I started seeing that there were things that needed to be done. But I don't know, I, I guess it has to do with the people I've known through my life that for me, the most important thing was personal relationships and that you don't want to do anything that is damaging to anybody else. 
In fact, I was talking with Kevin McKenzie about this, how some people put dance on a holy grail, like say, you know, this holy thing, and you go, no, people are important. And he said, absolutely. The moment that you understand that, then you're free to become the best you can be. And that's basically what we have seen. But in Europe, there's also been a transition because in Europe, you had the highly professional schools that are state-supported. So basically, you could sustain a class of maybe four or five students, and you had a whole teaching staff, a whole support system, which is completely unattainable in the United States. We have to be cost-effective. And in fact, now Europe, they're also realizing that that is not always justifiable. They have to find, you say, we're giving you this much money, how many people are you training? But unfortunately, ballet is extremely selective. I mean, everybody does sports, but how many people actually go into a sports team? So the idea of having dance schools for everybody, and, and a lot of schools throughout Europe have a problem because there was this drive to achieve what the Paris Opera did, or what La Scala in Milan did, or what the Royal Ballet did. And it's unachievable. You don't have the resources to be able to do that. And it is also unfair for those students because they get injured or frustrated or they don't want to see a ballet ever again. And we're thinking in a way that it would be more positive to create a population of dance spectators who love it because of the experience has been positive for them. But in that, you also can create dancers that are professionals as well. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> yes. But then you want to create dancers who have a healthy attitude to their work. We try to inform teachers that there are certain moments in life that you have to be very careful with the characteristics of the students, because if you know those characteristics, then your approach can differ to the benefit of the child. And a very simple example Children from the ages of 6 to 10 have to have absolute control of their environment. This is an absolute necessity. They've gone from being the center of the universe when they're preschool, then they have this moment where all of a sudden they're realizing that they're not the center of the universe, but they need to have control of their environment. And if a child does not feel that control, the child then tries to find control in other ways. And it's one of the main reasons of bullying, because then that child can become a bully, it is one of the main reasons of anorexia and bulimia. So you have children that try to find control in other ways, but it's incredible that that is triggered at such a young age and it doesn't really happen until much later. Having that information also helps or equips us better to make healthier, happier dancers. Sensible. Yes, it is sensible. Sensible dancers, sensibility yeah. to the art form. And it's, you know, the pursuit of happiness is in our constitution. <laughs> <laughs> so there. So there. So just to pivot a little bit, you're here this week to actually set a piece on the, the ballet. Can you talk about that piece? Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to congratulate the dancers. I mean, I came in and I thought, oh, I'm going to need all this time, et cetera. And they learned the whole thing today. So in one day, it was crazy. They were really wonderful, professional on top of it. So that was a great, a great. Always uh, great to hear. It was a wonderful experience. The ballet actually is a vals triste of Sibelius, and it's kind of melancholic. And I actually created it because I had a really bad boy in the school, <laughs> in JKO school. So he was a bad boy, but a lovable bad boy. And, uh, <laughs> and we received the prize in Italy, in Florence, as Best Academy. So they wanted us to perform in the Bargello Museum. 
And so Franco DeVita asked me, can you put together a duet and we take two dancers over? But this boy, he's he's now with the National Ballet of Canada. He's lovely. But he was he was naughty. He liked girls a lot. And I'm going, you know, girls are complicated. <laughs> and and girls see things multifaceted. And boys tend to see things like a one-way street. So I wanted to do the ballet, but sort of illustrate to him what that human reality. It was sort of to help him how to deal with situations, yeah. It was funny because it, the reason was for a human condition. And that's what ballets do. That's how they touch Giselle's human condition, Nutcracker. There are moments that are, are relating to jealousy, a little bit of fight, a little fear, incredible happiness, wonder. So you're expressing all those feelings that are human. So it started off more by using that music, which has that melancholic and really lovely melody. And so we put the ballet together and that's how it was done. Thank you both for being here. It's a pleasure to actually sit back and listen to the two of you talk. So uh, it's been great to have you in Fort Wayne again, Raymond. And Karen, we're going to have to get you set up to do more of these because when you're in a conversation, (laughs) they just flow by. So it's been great. They're fun. Thanks. Thank you. That's our show, brought to you by Fort Wayne Ballet and with the support of the University of St. Francis. Our guests today were Raymond Lukens of ABT and Karen Gibbons-Brown, Artistic Director of Fort Wayne Ballet. My co-producers for the series are John Dawkins, who also created the theme music, and Marsha Hetrick. To learn more about the ballet and hear our podcast, please visit us at fortwayneballet.org. Until next time, I'm Jim Sparrow, and thanks for listening to Kinetic Conversations with Fort Wayne Ballet. We hope you'll join us for our next podcast as Jim and Karen continue their discussion with Raymond Lukens, and he shares his thoughts with us on training and technique in modern dance. There is such a drive now to have extremes in dance, extreme turnout, extreme extension, extreme pirouettes, multiple turns. And then there's the school of thought that it's more about the artistry and not the pyrotechnics of the movement. Where do you sit on that? This is a tricky question because... The extreme, extreme turnout, the 180 degree turnout, that has been part of ballet from day one. The turnout was established to give the ability to move in all directions easily. It actually comes from fencing. But lifting the legs very high or overstretching, that has become, I think, too much in the sense that you can damage the ligaments and the joints and and it's really, really dangerous. Uh, And I think it's aesthetically not as pleasing as a line that balances each other, like in sculpture or in art. Sometimes we forget that it is an art form. Look for this interview soon on Kinetic Conversations.